Before Jesus preached this sermon, you remember that some of the events that are very significant in the life of Jesus happened just prior to this sermon. You remember back in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, where we find that Jesus had just come out of the waters of baptism when John the Baptist had baptized him, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And we know that Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit, and he had it without measure, unlike anyone else that lived in the world. Even those apostles that had various aspects of the Spirit, they had it within measure, but Jesus had it without measure. And then God said, after that dove had descended down upon Jesus, he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then very interestingly, we find that the Holy Spirit had took Jesus and he guided him and he brought him out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And we know the story. We'll not get into the particulars of that. But you remember when Jesus did not succumb to the temptations of the great tempter that day, you remember that the Bible says that the devil departs from Jesus and he leaves him. And then the Bible says that the angels came and ministered under Jesus. Well, from that point in time, Jesus began to preach. And his fame, I understand, as the Bible says in the fourth and fifth chapter of the, of the book of Matthew, we find that as Jesus was going about and as he was preaching, his fame began to spread throughout all of Syria. You know, I would imagine that there were those that would hear Jesus preaching and hear him preaching about things like the kingdom, and I would imagine that there were those that were willing to be followers of his right then and there and were interested in Jesus, not necessarily because of the miracles that he had performed, but because of the things that he had preached, and I would just imagine that there were those that did fall into that category who had good and honest hearts that wanted to follow after Jesus and was willing to do so. But you know, the Bible does say, though, that the multitudes were gathered about and his fame spread abroad because not only of the things that he had preached, but because of the miracles that he had performed. And then when people started hearing about these great miracles that Jesus was performing, the Bible says that here comes all manner of sick people. All manner, even a lunatic, it says. There were those that were demon-possessed as there were those in that time that were so. And the Bible says that this great multitude of people would gather around and would listen to Jesus and just possibly they might be healed of whatever ailment that they had. I don't know if this is why Jesus, in overlooking this great multitude, chooses to do what he did. I really don't know. I don't know if he decides to depart from the multitude and go into the mount because he knew that there were certain people that just were there because of the miracles that he had performed. I really don't know for sure. I don't think we can know for sure in that regard. But all I know is what it says. Jesus departs from the multitude and he goes into the mount and the disciples waited until Jesus was set. And when Jesus was set, here they come and here they are now to hang on every word that he would say. And he begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount. 
You know, as he preaches this sermon, he says things that are, I realize, so different than the thinking of the day then, and certainly even more so, the thinking of today. In verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5, he gives various qualities that people that are going to be in the kingdom are going to possess. Very interesting. He preaches things and he starts speaking of things that we often refer to as the Beatitudes. And he's talking about various characteristics and certain qualities that the child of God is going to possess if they're going to be in this kingdom that he'd been speaking of. And in these verses, it's almost as though Jesus was answering two questions that might have been asked in that time. Number one... Who are the citizens of this kingdom of heaven that you're speaking of? And number two, what benefits do they receive for being in the kingdom? And Jesus described the type of people who will ultimately be victorious. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, these are characteristics that certainly are not appealing in today's society. For example, we live in a society that says this. It is only the strong that survive. We live in a society that says you have got to protect and take care of number one. Because if you don't take care of number one, nobody in this world is going to. Uh, is going to. We live in a society that teaches it is the survival of the fittest. And so on. But you know, Jesus described them as types of character that is required. For one to be a citizen of the kingdom. He talks about things like this. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those that are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God and get this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. He is painting the picture of the kind of people that, the, that those that are going to be citizens of the kingdom must be. And this condition, Jesus sums it up, of those that would possess such qualities are summed up in one word, and that is, they are blessed. He is describing, though, something very interesting, and I think we need not to hurry past this point. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the behavior of the child of God in the face of and in the midst of opposition and whatever would come their way. You know what Jesus was saying in essence here? He's saying that there is evil influences that are out there in the world. And I understand that these evil influences are right in the very face of your Christianity. But he's saying this. You are going to behave in a proper way and in a proper fashion. And really, if we look at this, he's simply saying that it really doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter if you are going to be blessed. It doesn't matter what people might do to you. You are going to behave properly. You know, I like it a lot in today's vernacular. I really do. When folks on TV and all these so-called experts, I love it when they talk about behavior. Because sometimes in our society, what we do is we say, well, I've had a bad break. I've had a negative thing happen. I've had this thing happen to me. It's beyond my control. It wasn't my fault. was raised wrong. had a bad teacher. had a horrible father. had a bad mother, and so on and so forth. 
justifying all the things that they do in their life. Oh, I love when people in the so-called medical professional field say behavior is what's in question. And it really doesn't matter about the extenuating circumstances that might have been beyond your control. The only thing that matters is your behavior. And I think that's what Jesus was pointing out here. He says in the very midst of these influences in the world, this is how you're going to live. This is the ones that are going to be ultimately victorious because of the way that you live. And then very interestingly, Jesus goes from that point, he goes from the evil influences on the child of God and how we're to behave, and then all of a sudden, he switches gears now, and he talks about, in his sermon, he talks about the influence now that the child of God is going to have on the world. You remember what Terry talked about this morning. I appreciated that very much. He mentioned these two metaphors that Jesus spoke of in this sermon. Jesus said, this is the character that you're going to be. Here's a description of the type of person that you are in this world. He said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. These are two things that are descriptions. These metaphors is what Jesus said. This describes what you are in the midst of all of the darkness that's in the world today. He said, you are the salt of the earth. I appreciated what Terry said about the salt losing its savor or its flavoring ability, and that is so true. You know what I'm told about salt? Terry was right about that. If you all of a sudden in your life stop having the seasoning ability that you're supposed to have, then you are good for nothing but to be cast out or cast down and trodden underfoot of men. You know what I read, though, is very interesting. I didn't know this at the time. But I am told that salt in its purest form actually never loses its flavoring ability. Interesting. So what did Jesus mean when he said, if the salt has lost its savor. I understand and I am told that salt loses its flavoring ability when one thing happens. It has to be mixed or contaminated with impurities. You want to know why we preach on impurities? Why we preach on all of these sinful things in the world? You know why? And all the evil influences and all of the things we speak of, we do that because when we are contaminated with these things, it is then and only then that we lose our seasoning ability. Secondly, though, Jesus said you're the light of the world. Now here, we're the salt of the earth, meaning we are making the world palatable in the eyes of God. And therefore, as he looks down upon God's children, he sees that his people are the ones that make the world palatable to him. Secondly, though, we are the light of the earth, of the world. That's what we are. And we are to uh, be luminaries for those that would be in darkness. We are to be seen of men. That's a fact. We are to be seen of men. And also, too, as lights by the world as they look to us, we may be the only way that the world can get out of darkness. You know, the Bible is clear. It talks about a distinction between the child of God and darkness. Now, you and I that are members of the church, the church on the earth is in the world. It's not of the world, but it's in the world. And you and I have to live 
in the world. Whether we like it or not, we have to. Therefore, we're going to be judged according to our behavior and our obedience to the things in God's word, whether or not we're going to have a reward or be victorious later like Jesus spoke of. It's as simple as that. But we that are members of the body of Christ are like, and I picture it like this. Here's this gigantic uh, space or this gigantic world, and periodically you see a light shining. That's what the world is. The world is darkness. Everything in the world is darkness, and therefore the Christian is to be seen of men, and God gets the glory for doing so. And secondly, we're the only light to bring them to the true light. And that's to Christ. Well, in this sermon, he points these things out. He speaks of the dangers of anger. He speaks of the love that we're to have for our enemies. Then he warns about people being like the hypocrite. And he said, don't do that. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like those that go and stand in the synagogues and they pray long prayers to be heard and seen of men. Jesus said they have their reward and they're not going to receive anything from the Father. Then he said this, here's the instruction, but when you pray, you go into secret, and when you pray, you pray to God in that way, and when you do so, God will reward thee openly. And then he says one more blessing, one more blessing to the child of God in this life. He says that if you will obey the condition, all you have to do is obey the condition, and all the things that fall into place for obeying the condition, if you will obey the condition, then the necessities of life, you're not going to have to worry about those things because God is going to supply those needs for you. Oh, what a wonderful blessing that that is. And that's found, obviously, in the sixth chapter of Matthew. In summary, chapter 6 deals with man's relationship to God. And I said all of that to say what we're going to say from this point forward. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 now speaks of man's relationship with man. And in the first 12 verses, they're broken down as follows. Verses 1 through 6 deals with how it is that we judge others. You know, we've preached on this. You know what I feel about this. I'm sure I stand before folks that agree wholeheartedly, so I'll not spend very much time on this. Jesus was not saying that it's wrong to judge. In fact, to the contrary. He says, when you judge, indicating that there is times when we must judge. In fact, the Bible says, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And what Jesus is speaking of, though, in those first six verses of chapter 7 was this. He said, be very careful in the manner in which you judge, because whatever manner that you judge, it's going to be judged unto you again. Let me ask you this, folks. Have you ever been like me? I mean, being very, very honest. Have you ever been like me in time past, perhaps, when maybe I would have the wrong kind of heart in judging my brother? Maybe I've done that in time past. I'm certain that I have, living in the flesh and being imperfect. I'm certain that I've maybe done that. You know what scares me to death? If that's the way, and that's the heart, and that's the attitude, and that's my behavior, and that's my pattern in judging, I'm going to hear all that again. That scares me to death. Doesn't it scare you? That in the day of judgment, whatever judgment that I judged, I'm going to be judged just 
like that. Oh, Jesus is dealing now with our relationship to each other. Verses 7 through 11, Jesus speaks of, When you ask, you shall receive. When you seek, you shall find. And when you knock, it shall be opened unto you. But you know, in these words, when we look to the original Greek and the, tech and, the, and the tense here, it does not denote that if you ask one time, you'll receive. It does not mean if you seek one time, you shall find. And when you knock one time, it shall be open. What's being said here is it's a continual, persistent asking, a continual, persistent seeking, and a continual, persistent knocking. If I will do that... I'm on the right track now. I'm actually on the right track for being the kind of person that's going to be victorious in the end. I'm going to learn what the Word of God teaches. I'm going to know how to judge my brother and do so properly with righteous judgment. I'm going to behave properly. And I am now setting, uh, Jesus is now setting the stage and setting the pattern how we can do all of that. And he sums it all up in verse 12. And he says this, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, whatever he meant, that's a powerful statement. This is the sum total of the law and the prophets. The point is, though, or the question before us is, what exactly is the golden rule. And what's expected or required of me that I might fulfill this golden rule? First of all, let me talk to you about what's commonly referred to as the silver rule. Now, here's a difference. There's a difference between the golden rule and silver rule. In fact, did you know that various religions, and I'm not talking about Christian professing religions, I'm talking about religions in the world that don't believe in Jesus Christ. They have a form, not of the golden rule, but they have a form, and they teach it and preach it, and it's written in their writings, but they have a form or practice a form of silver rule. For example, the Hindu religion taught this. This is the sum duty, do not to others, which if done to thee would cause thee pain. The Buddhist religion taught this, hurt not others with that which pains yourself. The Jewish traditions taught this, what is hateful to you, do not to your fellow man. That is the entire law, all of the rest is commentary. The Muslim religion taught, no one of you is a believer until he desires for his brother that which he desires for himself. Other sources say this, or other forms of the silver rule. Do not do unto others what angers you if done to you by others. And finally, do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire. These are forms of the silver rule. There is a difference between the silver rule and the golden rule. Let's notice some things about the silver rule. First of all, we find that what's different about the silver rule than the golden rule is, right off the bat, we find that the language of the silver rule is negative. It is negative. That's the very first thing that we find in the silver rule is its language is negative. It's telling us not to do something. Secondly, 
Is silver of value? You have anything that's got silver in it? You have silver, anything at all? It's got value. It's valuable. I'm not saying it's not valuable, and I'm not saying that the silver rule is not valuable. That's not the point. What I want us to do is understand what it is. Yes, it's valuable. It's negative in language. Yes, it's valuable. And here's the example. Do not do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. That is a very valuable thing. You know, even in society, you know what they would say? That is a wonderful thing to follow because it'll even keep you out of jail. If I go out and harm others and break the silver rule, if I do that, then I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to pay for that in our judicial system. I'm going to pay for that as a Christian. I'm going to pay for those things that I do that are negative or bad to another. That's a fact. Do not do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. Now, let me just say this. Have you ever quoted the golden rule? And then when somebody asked you for a definition of the golden rule, you gave them the definition of the silver rule. Like this. I've heard folks do this. What's the golden rule? Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do even so to them for this law and the prophets. What's it mean? It means don't do anything to others that you wouldn't want done to yourself. No, that's the silver rule, and there is a difference. Jesus talks about something that is truly golden. The golden rule is, as the silver rule is negative in language, the golden rule is positive in language. Oh, now we're stepping on toes, because you know what this means? This means I've got to do something. Over here, as long as I don't harm Ryan, I'm good to go with Ryan. Everything's fine. But over here, if I sit back and do nothing, I have not fulfilled the golden rule. This is positive in language. Number two, as it is with the silver rule, it is, it is a value, but this is more valuable, like gold literally is, than silver. And finally, the example is this. As I use the common vernacular's definition of the golden rule. And here it is. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This means that I have something that I have to do. You know, Jesus spoke a mouthful in Matthew 7, 12. And he was saying, really... On the flip side of this, that if the Christian or the child of God does nothing, he has not fulfilled the golden rule. I have to think about things that I would want Daryl to do for me. I have to think about how would I really want Daryl to treat me? How would I enjoy being spoken to? How would I really enjoy what would I benefit if he did something for me? And I think of the very, very best thing that I can think of that I would want him to do for me, to me, and about me, and all that. And I got to do it to him. And I got to do it to him. And I got to do it to her. And them. And on and on. That's what Jesus said. Whatever you want, whatever you would love for somebody to do for you, you step outside of your little box and you go and do that for someone else whether it's reciprocated or whether it's not. Now that, in the words of this morning from the fellows that stood before us twice, that is sobering. That tells me that I got something to do in my life to fulfill the golden rule. You know, 
we find that this one rule summarizes what the law and the prophets were all about. Just as the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself summed up the law according to the Apostle Paul. Now think about Paul. Think back on his background. Think of his education. This was an educated man. He was an educated man in every way. Linwood Smith says we might call him Dr. Saul today. This man studied at the feet of Gamaliel. This man practiced his religion flawlessly. This was a man that did all the things that was expected of him under the old law. And I would imagine this man knew the letter of the law right down to the T. Yes, he knew all of those things. And this is his summary of the law. In Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, listen to these verses of Scripture. Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then in verse 10, Paul says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. A man that understood it like we can't even fathom. But this is such an amazing passage of Scripture. How many times do we quote the first part of this verse and leave the rest? You know when the Bible says, Owe no man anything, is that true? Yes, that's true. That is absolutely true. What does it mean, though? Well, it means that I have to honor my debts. I have to honor my commitments to someone. If I owe somebody money, if I owe Ryan money, I am duty-bound to pay it back. I can't just one day decide, well, I don't think Ryan really needs it all that bad. In fact, it's really not a whole lot, so I'll just dust my hands of it, I'll just wash my hands of it, and I'll just be about my way. He can, he can stand that kind of a financial hit, and I won't pay him back. If I go to Ryan and I say, Ryan, I can only pay you a dollar a month, but I'll pay you for the rest of my life. And if he says, that's fine, I've honored my debt. We have to pay our debts. That's what Paul says. He says, and we're, we're saying, saying this to show something very powerful here that Paul uh, is going to tell us. He says, owe no man anything. In other words, you keep paying on your debts for the rest of your life as long as there's blood in your veins and you pay them off completely. Have you ever had a bill, you ran up a tab, you had an account, and you paid it off? My short lifetime, we've had a few of those. I know that there are folks here that, don't, that have completely done that. Maybe in your whole life you have no debt. What a feeling that is. We are to work toward that feeling in all that we do. In fact, the idea is, and the language of Paul is, he's saying don't just pay on it. You pay it like you're paying it off. And you pay on it until you do regardless of what that takes. But then he says that there's another debt. A debt that you will never pay off as long as you live. However, it is one that you must pay on every single day until you die. And that is this. He says, owe no man anything, that's an absolute, but what? But to love one another. That's what he said. 
He said, there is a debt that I will never, ever pay off. And that is the debt of love that I must have for my fellow man. You know, we must continue to do that and, and continue to, to do those things. And when I look at things like the idea of that old song we used to sing so long ago at the cross, if you remember those words where it says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And the second stanza says, But drops of grief could ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Oh, we owe a debt of love to each other that we will never in this entire world pay off. We owe a debt of love because even if we just take even the smallest glimpse at Calvary, then we know that that debt will never be satisfied. That is one that's always going to be on my account, but it's one that I can never stop paying on. Paul said it's the fulfillment of the law. Jesus illustrated this great truth. You remember a very familiar story, I know. But in Luke 10, you remember when a lawyer came to Jesus and the lawyer said, oh, what a great question. And you know, there's no question in all the world that's better for anybody to ask than what the lawyer asked. The difference is, though, Jesus could examine the hearts of those that were present and he could know if what they really meant was or if their heart was really sincere in wanting to know the answer and so on. He knew that. He knows what you and I can't know. And incidentally, things may seem obvious to us. We might think we're putting together the evidence and, and circumstances and facts and we might think that we know the motive of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ like we may know their heart. We do not know their heart for sure, and that's not something that is for us to do, is to judge their intention, their motives, and their hearts. But we're not Jesus, and he could do that. And when that lawyer came to Jesus, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love so much the way that Jesus responds to him. He says, well, what's, what sayest the law? And how readest thou? And the lawyer said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and my neighbor as myself. Jesus said, You have answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. And as we've noticed in time past, of all the points of clarification that this man could have asked Jesus, he says this, well, who then is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with a little story. What a great story, but listen, if you look at the facts and you look at all the elements of this story, it fits exactly what he meant in Matthew 7 and 12. And here it is. He said that a man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho and somewhere along that 15-mile stretch that descended some 3,000 feet or so on that rough and rocky terrain, he's going down that road, and somewhere along that path, he's overtaken with robbers. And they almost kill him. They take all that he has, and they leave him there for dead. So Jesus now is responding to the question, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you. There was a man, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and so on. I want you to notice, though, the two examples that Jesus chooses to use in this story, and then the third example of one that did exactly what he should have done along this line. 
Here Jesus says that there was a priest, and the priest comes along, and really the language of the scripture there in Luke 10, I kind of picture it this way. It says, when the priest came upon him, he passed on the other side. So in other words, he was going along, and he looks, and he sees the man from a distance, but he keeps right on going. Now let me ask you, he didn't break the silver rule because he didn't do this man any harm. After all, he was not the robbers. He was not those thieves. He didn't do something physically against this man, nor did he take his possessions. But Jesus says he passes by on the other side. Then he says, likewise, a Levite. Now this is worse. Have you ever looked at that language of the Levite? That's worse. It says, the Levite comes and goes and looks upon him. In other words, he walked across and took a real good look at him, and then he goes to the other side, and he keeps right on going. Again, he didn't break the silver rule, but he did nothing to help. You know, we can kind of picture maybe, maybe the man would look out and see the priest and say, oh, of all the people that have come through here today, surely he's going to stop because he's a worshiper of God. Oh, a worshiper of God, he'll stop. But then he would pass right on by the Levite. Maybe he said, oh, at last, he'll stop. He's a helper in the temple. This is a worker. He's common, folks. He'll come over there and help me. But he passes on the other side. You know, just maybe, and maybe we do this too. Maybe we think, in certain places where we are, nobody will see us behave like this. Nobody will see us behave in this way or that way. If I don't do that which is good or right, it's okay because really nobody knows me here. I like what somebody said one time about this. He said, be careful of all of that because what you really are, get this, is best revealed in how you act in places where you are not known. Now that's sobering too. That tells me the way I dress, the way I talk, the way I act, the way I behave, the stories that I tell, the places that I frequent, all of that, that's really who I am. Because who I am is not who comes down here three times a week and worships God. That is in obedience to what the Word of God says. But if we really want to know what and who we are, it's outside. It's when we get away from our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we do that, that is defining who and what we really are. Oh, we are better known in places. We are described and revealed better in places where we are not known. Well, finally, we know the story where Jesus says that here comes a Samaritan of all things a mongrel race, ones that the Jews looked down upon, wouldn't even worship with them. Oh, what a horrible thing. You remember when they exhausted all the things they could possibly say to Jesus, you know what they said? You're a Samaritan. That's what you are. You're a Samaritan and have a devil. Frustrated because they couldn't think of something worse. He talks about these religious elite folks that don't do the golden rule that don't love his neighbor and don't do exactly as they should. And here comes a Samaritan and he looks at the man and he goes over and he picks him up and he wounds up or he binds up all of his wounds and he puts him on his beast and he takes him to the inn. And after being all night and cooling his fevered brow, 
He goes to the innkeeper, the head guy there, and he gives him some money. The Bible says two pence out of his pouch, pocket, whatever he had. And he gave it to the man. He says, I got to go. But when I return, if this didn't cover it, I will pay thee what I owe. And he goes on his way. You think Jesus has this lawyer's attention? He sure does. In fact, he said, tell me, which one of these men was neighbor unto the man that was overtaken by thieves? And he said this. He said quite obviously it was the one who showed him mercy. And finally, Jesus said, go and do likewise. Oh, to fulfill the golden rule, there are things that we must do. In conclusion tonight, in these first 12 verses of Matthew 7, there's a continuous theme, and that is that the righteousness of the kingdom is being spoken of with regard to man's dealings with man. And the three basic points of these 12 verses are the following. Number one, be careful, you remember, in your judgment of others. For what judgment you judge, it shall be judged unto you again. Number two, persevere in looking to God for help and in making proper discernments. And thirdly, in your treatment of others, treat them like you want to be treated. One man said that the golden rule is like a pocket knife or a carpenter's rule. In that it is always ready to be used, it is always available, and it always works. Even in times of emergency, when there's no time to consult a friend, consult a teacher, or a book for advice, the golden rule can be a guide for proper conduct. And if you treat others like you want to be treated, if you would just consider that, I really don't know if there's any possible way that I can step on my brother's toes. If I would just consider that, put myself over there. Now, folks, you know me. I'm not saying that we, when there are those that are in the wrong, that we just leave it alone because, after all, we really wouldn't want to be corrected. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this, the, what's in question is the manner and the motive behind it. And if I go to someone, I can even do it negatively. Folks, have you ever gone to your brother or sister? I've done it, I, I, and I'm sure you have too. But you look them right in the eye and you say, I, I'm troubled by the life you're living, and it scares me to death because you're going to lose your soul. And you're going to go to hell, and I don't want that. Now, folks, I just told my brother or sister, I admonish them, and I exhort them <laughs> to do what's right. I've told them some pretty startling negative things, didn't I? I just told them they're going to hell. Not because I said it, because we're judging righteous judgment. If it contradicts the word of God, it's wrong. Now, your brother or sister may not appreciate it. They may not want to get their soul right. That very well may be. Very well. But you'll never do them wrong. In fact, you did them justice. And if the manner in which you did it was with the right motives, you got a chance. The guard comes down. You know, it's interesting about the Word of God. That meeting that I just finished in Kentucky, there were several nights where there were some rather large crowds, 100, 120, 130 people, and there were some people that 
me and one of the elders had gone out and visited that were out of duty. These people were completely out of duty. And we go and we try to talk to them, and they say, well, I'll come to the meeting. And they did. And you get up and preach, and I get up and preach just as hard as I can with the right attitude and the right heart about where their soul is, only to have their heart be calloused and hardened and stand there. And then all of a sudden, on the other side of the building, here come these two sisters just bawling their eyes out because the word of God pricked their heart too. It's the motive behind it. It's the attitude behind it. It's the heart behind it. And if I will take my brother and put him before me, we've talked about this so many times, the word preferring, Paul said. If I prefer that brother over myself and my own feelings, guess what, folks? We're not going to have a problem. We're going to get through anything. And folks, I'll tell you this too. We can disagree. I mean, we can disagree. We can disagree and never come to an agreement. But we can still have peace in the body of Christ because we had the right heart and we preferred our brother. Jesus said, you want to get this whole thing? He said, therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And finally, and I'm through tonight, how do we know how do we know if we are doing that which is right? The Bible talks about love. I've got to love my brother. I've got to love my neighbor. How do I know if I'm doing that? Is there something that I can test myself with? Somebody wrote this little poem. It, it really hit home with me, and I'm going to read it to you and share it with you, and then I'll be through. But here's a poem which was written by a man concerning this very idea and this very thought. And it fell out in my briefcase. Don't know if that's ever happened to me before. Well, I'll just finish up. The gist of the poem is that there was three children. And each one of the children came to their mother and told their mother that they loved her. The first one comes to her and he says, oh, I love, I love you, mother. But pretty soon, he looks at all the things and all the tasks that she has that she needs to do. Pretty soon, he, put his, he puts his cap on and outside he goes about his business, forgetting completely about anything that she might be doing. The second child comes to the, his mother and the second child says, I love you, mother, I really do. But then she fussed and complained all day long, so much so that the mother was happy when she went outside to play. But the third one, the third one comes up to her and says, Mother, I love you so much that I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you in everything you've got to do today. <laughs> she immediately goes into the cradle where the baby was, and she picks up, the, up that baby and rocks her to sleep. She comes out and tiptoes out into the other room not to wake the little child, grabs a broom and sweeps the floor. She lightens the load of her mother all day long. The story goes at bedtime, all three say, I love you, mother. But the question was this. In her assessment of all of that, which one did she know loved her best? Which one?
Love is truly demonstrated on our actions, our behavior toward each other. That tells me that I got to do some deeds, the works, I got to do all that to fulfill what Jesus said is the sum total of the law and the prophets. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.